Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 49, Interview with Daryl Cowan, also talking about Baja, B.C. Batteries not included. Hey, I appreciate you listening today. I mean, thank you for listening. I appreciate you listening today, and uh, if you have not yet uh, heard our previous episode... The previous episode was a Baja BC interview with the godfather of the whole concept, Merle Beck. And that's pretty much required listening before you hear Daryl Cowan here today. So I hope you can make that happen. Um, Assuming you've heard that uh, Merle visit, uh, I'm happy to report that the audio is significantly better for our visit with Daryl, Practice Makes Perfect. And to set the stage for my visit with Daryl, um, I actually posted the Merle interview, um, got a bunch of feedback. People really loved it. I had no idea what the reaction would be. And the microphones were screwing up so badly there at the end that I, I cut the last part of the Merle visit. And that's the part where he was mentioning Daryl Cowan and that Merle felt like, you know, he didn't have much support among the structural geologists, the bedrock geologists, the non-paleomag people. But he did mention Daryl and he and he was uh, kind of tipped his cap to, to Daryl. So I emailed Daryl out of the blue and like with Merle, I had had a chance to interview Daryl. Uh, on top of Mount Erie uh, in the San Juan Islands. And Daryl is absolutely the authority on San Juan Island geology from all his work with his grad students, etc. And like with Merle, the PBS crew just loved Daryl. Daryl just lit up in front of that camera. And um, I thought, boy, same feeling that I had with Merle. I, I, I just, we didn't give this guy enough time. You know, these are five-minute PBS TV programs, if you're unfamiliar, called Nick on the Rocks. I mean, five minutes, for goodness sake. They, ju- they just air them, you know, between, between hour-long programs. So you got a five-minute program, and you got like seven and a half seconds of Daryl Cowan, uh, even though we took all this time to get a perfect backdrop, et cetera, for our visit with Daryl. So I remembered that Daryl was good um, as well in an interview format. And so I emailed Daryl, said, uh, here's Merle's interview. Uh, Maybe you have an interest in watching it. And then, uh, Daryl, would you be interested in having me come visit your backyard? Masks, blah, blah, blah. And so the Merle thing was helpful because he watched the Merle interview. He was very interested in what Merle had to say. He hadn't visited with Merle much in in the previous decade plus. And it got a bunch of ideas going with him. And in the case of Daryl, I, I wanted to visit him primarily to get some background and reaction to a very important Baja BC paper that Daryl wrote in 1997. And we'll talk about it uh, in the interview. And so essentially, it was 25 years after Merle's work was first put out there, and Daryl's coming 25 years after the fact and saying, look, uh, 
this Baja BC thing is still an idea. I'm reminding you all of it. And to me, that was the biggest uh, surprise that uh, I didn't realize that Baja BC was kind of fading from view. And Daryl wanted to come up with some crucial tests that geologists uh, who might want to work on the project uh, might want to follow through. So he kind of gave some marching orders for uh, folks uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s to try to, you know, put this idea to the test. So um, I think it was a weekend. I think it was a Saturday, if I recall, and met Daryl. He gave me his address, of course. Uh, met him. He lives uh, uh, near the University of Washington campus. Uh, another hot day. We've had a lot of beautiful weather here lately. Um, met Daryl in his backyard. We'd only met once before for that PBS thing. But, you know, my job is to make these guys feel comfortable and to try to just kind of um, lead them a little bit. Uh, you know, these are all scientists that I'm interviewing. They all want to prep. They all want to be, you know, meticulous. They all want to kind of know exactly what we're doing before we start. And in a way, I'm more of an artist than a scientist in many, way, in many, in many situations, in the sense that I just go, hey, you're going to have to trust me. We're just going to kind of go with it. If we talk it all out ahead of time, we're going to kill it. We're going to kill the, the spirit of it, the spontaneity of it. And so, you know, so far, so good. These, these, these guys, I guess, know enough about me to trust me that I, that I won't make them look like a, like a dum-dum. And that's pretty hard to do in these cases. These guys are pretty um, impressive. But I'll let you decide how impressive they are. Um, like I did with the Merle interview, I've included the uh, on-camera intro and outro. Uh, and so I don't need to do a whole lot of that here, except to say I love you and I thank you for listening to Daryl Cowan from his backyard in Seattle, Washington. Exotic Terrain live streams coming Wednesday, September 9th at 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. Hope you can join us. Thank you for listening. And here's Daryl. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Seattle, Washington, home of the University of Washington and also home to longtime professor Daryl Cowan. We're going to talk about Baja BC again, not with Merle Beck, but this time with Daryl Cowan, bedrock geologist, structural geologist. The saga continues. Let's head over to Daryl's backyard, see what he's got to say. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Yeah, I've lived here uh, 41 years in November. Yeah, it's close to the U and, and a bike trail where I can, uh, I can uh, bike in when the weather's good. Sure. Um, when did you arrive here at the University of Washington? I came in September of 1974 and uh, never looked back. It's been a great place, great colleagues, um, good geology, good students. So I've enjoyed it um, um, the whole time. And I'm still, I'm emeritus, but I still uh, come back and teach winter quarter and our summer field courses if we could actually have them, but they were virtual this summer, but I participated. So I like the environment, I like my colleagues, and I love to teach my winter quarter structure tectonics class. Oh, that is it's, an inspiration, I'll tell you that, 1974. Yeah. Um, and 
Can you summarize your specializations uh, in that almost 50 years worth of time at the UW? Yeah, I think um, I, uh, they hired me as a structural geologist. And um, I think my specialties, I'm a field geologist. Mm -hmm. And I think my, um, my specialties are structural geology and tectonics, larger, um, larger movements of crustal blocks and and um, I'm a field geologist, so I like to go look at evidence in the field for, um, you know, f to solve problems, basically. And not just geologic mapping, but anything else that could help, like petrography, um, isotope, geochemistry. But, um, so yeah, I'm a field structural geologist. That's how I'd classify myself. And did you stumble into geology like the rest of us? And what, where did you go to school? Well, I, um, I was born in Los Angeles. I'm a Californian, so that becomes important uh, <laughs> later in this interview. Right. And um, I was born in LA and grew up in the San Gabriel Valley where I lived until I went to Stanford as an undergraduate in 1962. That's a long oh time ago. Oh my heaven's yeah. sake. Um, I had a really rough first year. But the um, uh, first quarter of my sophomore year, I took Geology One at Stanford and I knew this was it. Uh, I collected minerals as a kid. I liked minerals, but but <clears throat> there was something about um, the way it was taught. And and the next four years at Stanford, um, one of their features was a lot of field trips. They took us out in the field, and and the culmination was Bob Compton taught summer field geology in 1965. Um, we had a two-week siege in Cal in the California coast ranges, and then we went to Utah. And that, I think, made me, um, it really shaped my, my whole career. So then I went to Yale to get out of California for a year of graduate school, came back <laughs> to the womb, and um, finished my PhD at Stanford in um, early 1972. And the, the, um, another important fact, while I was a graduate student at Stanford, uh, something called plate tectonics came along. <laughs> And um, we were sort of there at the creation. And the whole theory, as you know, had been promoted and, and um, codified by marine geophysicists. And geologists were not quite on board until Bill Dickinson, who was my PhD supervisor, convened the second Penrose Conference, GSA Penrose Conference, where I think 80 geologists found out what the different kinds, three different kinds of plate boundaries and motions could be read in the geological record. It was, it was revolutionary and fun. I was just a grad student showing slides, running projectors. But, but we came out of that, um, I think, and then the publications really started flowing about, about California, the, the magmatic arc, the four arc basin, the subduction complex, the Franciscan, which is where I did my PhD actually, in the Franciscan subduction complex. So, so my work became, let's say, kind of important as was everybody's who was working on these problems in, in California. By the way, there was one woman at that Penrose conference and her name is Tanya Atwater. And she blew us all away by showing us what the San Andreas Fault is in terms of plate tectonics. Um, what was wow. the year for that conference? 1968. Wow. 1968 or 69, I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but it was, mm -hmm. 
it was only the second Penrose, and it was in Monterey, Asilomar. Um, but um, that, I think, um, there were so many geologists who'd done a lot of work, like Marshall Kay at Columbia, who had worked in Newfoundland and the Appalachians, Bob Hatcher. And they thought, oh, now I, now I have a better idea of what, what, um, how to explain this. Well, I, I can only imagine the excitement that, that decade and beyond. Um, now, you did mention a name that some of our viewers who saw the Merle Beck interview, maybe their ears perked up a little bit. So, Bill, is that the same Bill Dickinson that's, Merle was talking that's about? That's exactly the same Bill Dickinson. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was my PhD supervisor, and um, of course, I'd known him throughout the rest of our careers. Um, but a I should say, after after um, my PhD, I went to work for Shell Oil Company. There was a three-year interval where I was an exploration geologist in the Alaska Division. Hmm. So I got to go on three summer helicopter-supported field projects all over Alaska that a, a little Pilgrim PhD student could never have done on his own. Right. And the reason we were there uh, was something called Prudhoe Bay that was discovered in 1968. Shell had worked in Alaska for decades, had made discoveries, but oil companies all of a sudden thought, uh-oh, maybe, maybe we've overlooked something. So I felt the pull of academia, and I came back, I came to UW as an assistant professor in, in 1974. Well, I, think, I think like for my PhD dissertation, it was a rock hammer. I've still got it in the garage. Um, collecting a lot of samples, looking at thin sections. Um, uh, Dick Armstrong, who was then at Yale, did um, some uh, K-Argon dating for me. But then when I came up here, um, uh, it was all new to me. I mean, I knew California geology, and, and um, my first project, thanks to John Whetton, who was a colleague in Department of Geological Sciences, was in the San Juan Islands. And, um, one of the reasons I was interested is that the Franciscan has some weird rocks called melange. You know, they're mixtures, these chaotic rocks that aren't well bedded, and there was a lot of controversy about how they form. So I went up to the San Juan Islands, and I thought, gee, there, there's some interesting rocks up here, and started uh, mapping, geologic mapping. We used a zodiac rock hammer, collected a lot of samples. Um, and then I was learning about <laughs> Northwest geology in the Northwest Cascades. Peter Mish was here, of course uh -huh. he'd worked. And somewhere along the line, I, I, I began to think this is not California. This is not a subduction zone like the Franciscan. You know, these rocks are different. They're, they're widely differing ages that have somehow been mixed together. And this is where I was looking at Bill Dickinson's classic 1976 paper mm -hmm. in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences, where he, he basically showed in Jurassic and Cretaceous time California geology right through here and up into British Columbia. And I, I have a reprint, and I looked at it, and I had a lot of question marks in there. And I, be, I think this is something that was very important in in when we get to that paper, that Baja BC paper, is that our geology is different and it can't be explained by just a continuation of the magmatic arc, the four arc basin, and the subduction complex um, through the Pacific Northwest. 
Uh, had Dickinson been up here to do the field work, or, or I, I don't, um, I don't think Bill, um, he all, all, all he knew was what he could read, and and to be blunt, there just wasn't much written on the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. You know, we're thinking mid '70s, yeah. and compared to California, the burst of papers that had come out after this, you know, um, conference in 1970s, and so the amount of information was very slim. Interesting. And I think, um, I, I think um, he, I don't know him ever coming up here, although he'd done his PhD in Oregon, in Eastern Oregon, but I think um, as far as we knew, I mean, our geology here in, in British Columbia, Canada, mm -hmm. I, I don't think he had very much information. Okay, well, our main focus is your 1997 Baja BC paper, which is really just, I've reread it a, a couple of times in the last 48 I, hours. I see it down. Yes, it's <laughs> yeah. right here. You know what, I should get it. Um, I'm just, I was trying to piece so much of this together on my own, and then I keep coming back to this thing, and it's truly amazing, Daryl. So 1997, American Journal of Science. You can read the title as well as I. Uh, are Mark and John former students of yours? Yeah. Okay. So I can I can say a little bit about we can talk about how this paper um, germinated. That. So yeah. so um, we're um, in the late '70s and early '80s. Mark Brandon and John Garver um, did um, their um, master masters and Marcus PhD. I guess masters work on the San Juan Islands. Mm -hmm. And then um, kind of, um, let's say 1985, um, I had a cohort, we had a cohort of graduate students that only come together once in a while. I mean, they were mm -hmm. all field geologists, they were interested in tectonics, they knew plate tectonics, Mike McGroder, John Garver, Paul Umhofer, Mark, Margie Russmore. And because they were working, some of them were working in British Columbia, we would go up to, we knew BC people like Jim Monger, and mm -hmm. we'd go to Pacific Geoscience Center where there was this guy in Van Vancouver Island named Ted Irving. And we, um, we were reading Ted's papers, paleomagnetic papers. And then he wrote a little one in Nature, I think, called, uh, well, he, he coined the term Baja British Columbia, as Merle said. So we, um, we were interested, and you know, the funny, thinking a funny comment, um, all these guys and women um, were, all, um, were all proponents of Baja British Columbian. And someone once said, you know, maybe it's the water in Johnson Hall. That's our building in, and University of Washington has poisoned our minds <laughs> with this, this idea. But we, um, we all knew about it and um, we did our work and everything. Um, and then I think what, what really drove us to this paper, and it's right in the abstract, mm -hmm. Baja BC was based, is based on paleomagnetic data. I mean, Ted was upfront about that. Merle himself said yes. it, you know, um, Baja BC is, and, and at some point we said, where's the geology? You know, let's, the, the whole topic is kind of disappearing because if you didn't, accept or like paleomagnetic data for some reason, you, you, 
um, that was one reason you, you just didn't have to worry about this. And the other, and I'll say this very openly, I'm a Californian, but I think the other thing is that, is that it doesn't do much for California geology. Um, when you think about it, this is, this is up here in the Northwest, <clears throat> and um, you know they've got published a lot, and the idea of having some big terrain move past Oh, your state, where, where we're very happy, you know, we've got the, we, I call it the late Mesozoic triad, the, the Sierra Nevada Arc, the Four Arc Basin, the Franciscan Complex, um, which, you know, was very happily made during subduction, and then to have this whale move by, um, I don't, I, and, and I, I, I still think that it, it doesn't solve much for Californians. So that together with, you know, Mark and John and I said, let's get some, let's get the, some geology in here and see not just paleomagnetics. Um, and um, what drove me was the, the knowledge that our geology here is so different from California. So where did this come from? Mm -hmm. You look at the paleomagnetic data and you think from the south. And you can't get, I, I would still claim I'd go up against that wall and say you can't get the rocks in the North Cascades and the San Juan Islands from the north, but you look south and you can find potential um, potential sources for these fragments. Now, were you the first or the first group to kind of address Baja BC from a bedrock point of view as opposed to the paleomag point of view? Um, I have to think about this for a minute, but I think. I think um, the people at the um, Geological Survey of Canada, like Jim Monger, um, fantastic mapper and um, so knowledgeable about, about British Columbia, yeah. um, they were coming at it from a geological point of view and, and said, we can, we can, um, we can um, understand everything in the coast mountains of British Columbia and the Intermontane Belt without having Baja BC. <laughs> oh. Oh yeah. I they um, they from careful mapping and geologic studies, you know, along the um, like um, all over Coast Mountain, especially the Fraser River area and um, north uh, northeast of Vancouver, Harrison Lake area, and everything um, over across the Fraser Strait Creek Fault. Um, they. Um, they would, every time we went up there, we'd hear a conference. We had a little courtier and workshop meetings. Um, they would say, Jim would say, but wait a minute, there are these conglomerates that, you know. So I think they, they were using geology <clears throat> and, and did not favor um, the paleomagnetic um, hypothesis of Baja BC. And where were you at that moment, Daryl? Were you totally open or were you, why were you willing to uh, acknowledge this <laughs> when some, everybody else is saying this is just a paleomag fantasy? It's the water in Johnson. No, I, <laughs> you, you know, Peter Mish was drinking that water too, Oh yeah, wasn't Peter, he? Peter, well, he, um, you know, he did incredible petrologic and, and mapping um, studies in the North Cascades, but he, he was a good example of someone who, um, when, when plate tectonics was invented, a theory, um, you know, it, it had some important parts, like, like three kinds of plate boundaries. And, 
and movements on a sphere, you know, the, and, and um, Peter would say, well, I've been teaching plate tectonics for, sorry, Peter, I've been teaching plate tectonics for decades, but, but he, he didn't, for him, it was, it was like um, just thrust faults and not the whole picture. Yeah. So he, he really, he would just say, well, I've been teaching plate tectonics. And he, I don't think he paid much attention to Baja BC, although, although he, he was not very well kind of when, when we start, when all these graduate students and, and Ted's paper came out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Nick, I was thinking, um, I, don't, I don't consider myself an iconoclast, you know, who's out to bust, um, um, major ideas or I'm not a what's the the current word an activist you know where I'm looking for things so I I think it was just um, you know this is we can't just dismiss this because you don't like paleomagnetic data you don't understand it and let's let's do something this is kind of Merle's comment you know he says everybody just tries to disprove the paleomagnetic data and not follow up what some of the implications yeah, are. Yeah. So I think that was what motivated me, yeah. So you had that dream team of students in the 80s, and, and then we flash forward, if, you, if you're willing, another decade. So we're in the mid-90s yeah. now, and I'm curious about the specific motivation for that 1997 paper, which essentially is saying, look, can we find some crucial tests so that we can kind of uh, move on as opposed to just bashing this idea. I think um, I, w I actually started writing that thing. I was on a sabbatical leave in Italy in 1995. And, and I don't know, um, you know, just been kind of, um, you know, Paul finished and left and John Garver finished and Mike McGroder. And it, I think it was just sort of a nagging thing. You know, I let, let's... Oh, it's disappearing from view. I really felt like oh. I really felt like let's get it on the front burner again. You know, it's we, we don't hear much about Baja BC now, um, and there's some value there in in actually um, um, doing some geological tests. But the other thing I was thinking about this morning, um, a scholar named Naomi Oreskes came and gave a talk at UW. I don't know. She's she's famous now for a book called Merchants of Doubt, you know, where she um, uh, basically has thought a lot about the philosophy and logic. And she gave a talk and she started talking about testing hypotheses. And, you know, maybe, I don't know if she used the term confirmatory bias, but, you know, she says, really, when people test hypotheses, they don't, they're not testing them. They just go out and get corroborating evidence and say, look, you know, I've got more. And they don't consider alternatives. And she might have mentioned a crucial test, which is where you have two mutually incompatible hypotheses that cannot both be true. It's like binary, you know, it's one and zero. It could be something in between, but I thought this is really amazing. I mean, we've got two, they both can't be right. right. So how do you, how do you, what can you find that each one makes predictions that would, if you find a prediction that's satisfied by evidence that eliminates the other one, then that's kind of a negative test. I mean, you've basically disproven one of the hypotheses. So I think there was just a period of, of years where we thought it was disappearing and um, 
let's do something geologically. It's a crucial test. And uh, that's where all that stuff in there. I went to the philosophy library and learned about logic and, yeah, you, you know. Yeah, you Feynman in there and <coughs> yeah. Gilbert. And it was a really interesting way to put that together. Uh, that's probably, I probably went overboard. But I think it was, <laughs> I, I think um, it's a very common thing that scientists do. I think I've done it myself is you, you have a great idea um, and it, you come up with that inductively. You look and say, hey, I've got this idea and I'm going to go out and I can find more evidence that supports my idea. But wait a minute, there might be another idea that um, is not to use a trite phase on my radar screen, you know, so I'm going to support my own. Uh, British Columbia controversy. Um, did you know Merle at that time? Were you sticking up for this guy? Did um, you have a collaboration? Or no, this is totally no. Independent? No, I knew Merle. I mean, we would, um, we would also have um, kind of a, a Western Washington UW um, workshops every other year, and we'd go back and forth. And uh, no, I, I knew him. In fact, I was so gratified to see him in your interview because, like you said, he's moved on to other things as, as I have. Um, subconscious influence was Ted Irving. I mean, Ted, his attitude was, um, here it is, you know, I've got, you know, he said, one time he said, you know, all you need is one data point or, you know, you have data. And, and I think he was kind of mystified about why, um, why people weren't going out and doing things to, um, he never said, Daryl, why don't you go out and do something geological? I don't remember ever saying that, but I think he, he kind of published all these papers and then, um, you know, with Jane Wynn and, and Glenn Woodsworth and Randy Aiken and, and, and saw that they weren't getting much traction except in his group and maybe from us, but, but, um, I don't know. I think um, I think subconsciously I thought, well, he's put in all this work, and it's a pretty pretty good story that maybe we should, as geologists, we should just go out and and uh, help him. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word. Well, you were perfectly set up, if, I guess, if you think about it, with your expertise with California geology, the Franciscan and that triad. I mean, who who better to to weigh the differences and to make some connections. I think that that was all always in the back of my mind, knowing California and mm -hmm. and um, what's possible, you know, that doesn't radically conflict with their good um, empirical hypotheses and, and models. I think I think now I will say this, although I don't know if it if I felt this, but I think we we wanted to give some credit to the paleomagnetic community. You know, you guys have this thing, this, this um, hypothesis. But, but I think, um, I think I, we were speaking to the whole community of geologists who worked in the Western U.S. Cordillera. I mean, from Alaska yes. to Baja, California, to Mexico. I mean, you know, we didn't care. We just wanted, because when you start talking about translations of 2,000 kilometers or 3,000 kilometers, you're, you're looking in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it wasn't, it wasn't for any particular person or group at any university. It was the whole um, community of, of um, we say, Cordilleran geologists, you know, who worked um, not necessarily in Nevada, but 
you know, the, the, the margin. And it was big. I mean, you know, when this idea of terrains came up, I mean, gosh, you'd go to a GSA Cordierance section meeting and every graduate students and people would be talking about the terrains in the Klamath Mountains and the Sierra Nevada foothills and up here in Washington. So there was a big group that, that um, um, I think we were, we were trying to, um, um, I'm not going to say wake up, but kind of, you know, like um, there's something important here. And, and that's why we put in, I just looked at that this morning, four things that you could do. And uh, provenance studies. What does that um, mean? That means, um, interesting sidebar here, but provenance, when you look at a, a sandstone and you look at the sand grains, you want to know where all the minerals came from. The provenance is source. So we said the provenance of the sandstones in the Metal Basin, that's over east of the Cascades, and it's got beautiful stratified sedimentary rocks in it. <clears throat> and um, if you study the sand grains, you might be able to figure out where were they eroded from, next door or somewhere else. And the Nanaimo, which is this fabulous um, upper Cretaceous, very thick section in just a little bit in, uh, in uh, San Juan Islands, but in the Straits of Georgia, Nanaimo, um, beautiful sandstones, um, look at the sand grains and see where they came from. Did they come from the coast mountains in British Columbia or somewhere else? And John Garver, um, he, one of our colleagues at, at UW, Joe Vance, had um, gotten interested in, in dating zircons, the mineral zircon, which is a detrital mineral, little grains of zirconium silicate. Um, using a fish and track method, you know, to try to figure out the age of the zircon. And John Garver um, was all over this. He did this in his master's work. And so he might have been the one who said, well, you know, let's, let's think about Precambrian zircons because in that paper there's a map of Precambrian yes. basement in North America of, of widely divergent ages, 2.5 billion up in Wyoming. 1.4 down in the Mojave. And we thought, wow, if you could find zircons in the sand and date them, and they're Precambrian, you might be able to figure out where along them, because the, the ages range from older in Wyoming to the north to younger to the south. There you go, there's your kind of, um, so that's why, <clears throat> that's why provenance, studying the detrital grains came in. And I think there's also one about, well, can you match rocks um, from, let's say, eastern Washington or eastern British Columbia right across all these faults? And there's a pinpoint, you know, where you can say, hey, that rock unit on Vancouver Island, the San Juans, is so like one over here in, in the Okanagan Valley that it can't possibly have moved great distances. So we, we, we kind of put some, some what to say, ideas out there for people to, um, to pick up on. So well, how would you characterize the reaction to the paper? Was it immediate? What did your former advisor, Bill Dickinson, have to say? He was the most vocal, one of the most vocal critics of Murrow. Um, I, the paper has been cited a lot. So let me say that, that it's, 
it's visible. I mean, the community knows about it, you know. And um, I, I think um, one thing it did do was, and it might have taken a couple of years, is there were some geologists who picked up on the detrital zircon story, and that was Brian Mahoney and Peter Mustard. And um, um, Peter was at the Geological Survey of Canada, and they. Um, they got some detrital zircons, I think it was out of the uh, Nanaimo, and with a limited data set said they came from Montana. So, you know, they, they said that, that rules out um, Baja BC. But then uh, Bernie Housen and Merle wrote a paper and said, wait a minute, you know, y you, there are other places these zircons could come from. And that's one of the that's one of the, we get back to confirmatory bias. You always look for evidence that will support your idea. And, and um, zircons, number one, can get reworked. You know, they can be deposited into a sandstone, and then that can be reworked, eroded, and reworked. But um, the other possibility for the, for the limited data set is Southern California, you know, which we now, we're now, people are working on and thinking about. So, to get back to your question, um, I, think, I think the paper is well known. Um, for a while, nothing really happened, you know, in terms, except for maybe the, the limited um, detrital zircon work, but, but, and this is 1997, detrital zircons were kind of a new thing back mm -hmm. then. I mean, um, but now, I mean, everybody, everybody does that. So the, the, um, the um, study of, of detrital zircons and trying to figure out where they came from, that has really taken off. Um, but it took a while. It took 97, I mean, basically, you know, 10 or 15 years for that to happen. Um, well, I was thinking about this on the drive over. I was talking to Merle, we're approaching 50 years ago yeah. that the original idea was out there. Yeah. And roughly, we're talking about 25 years ago that yeah. you're doing this kind of, uh, you know, hey, let's not forget about this thing and let's, let's fire some people up. Um, so there was a little <laughs> delayed response, but the, 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 the Detrital Zircon group started to find some things, or there was both camps of Detrital Zircon people. Yeah, there, there are... Um, you know, it's interesting, we're 50 years out, and it's still um, like an interesting hypothesis that, that, that is not, um, it's just not very prominent, I think. Uh, this is, uh, you, you know, there's a, so uh, the Tridal Zircon work, and we have like a Seattle GSA meeting, we had a symposium, Portland, you know, we, um, there were, there was information presented, but, but pretty soon it's like you're, you're speaking to a pretty mm -hmm. small audience and not mm -hmm. the broader um, Cordilleran community, which is what, what we were really speaking to. I'm surprised because I guess as I've been trying to put things together and acquired kind of collected papers from the last five, six, seven years, and certainly that session you put together in Seattle, mm -hmm. I mean, that pumped me right up. I was, I was like, boy, I gotta, I gotta spread the word about this. We've crossed a hump or something like that. But yes. maybe, maybe it doesn't feel that way to you. You've been in it so long. Or maybe, did you say you've kind of backed away from it too? No, no, I, I think, um, I'll make a couple of other comments that, 
that in addition to, um, let's say, the provenance studies, um, there is some paleobiological evidence, you know, leafs in the Metal Valley, in the Middle Cretaceous sediments that um, Miller, um, Brandon, and, and uh, Hickey worked on, you know, from the leaf margins and everything, um, made a case that they um, were deposited farther to the south. I think um, Peter Ward has some um, data on, on ammonites and, and there, um, he presented that at the Seattle meeting. So there's other, there are other um, lines of, of evidence, but, and I also wanna say that um, it, it's not just Baja BC, but if you just look at geology, um, I've published on um, this idea that this skinny little terrain in southern Alaska called the Chugach Prince William terrain, that um, its southern end on Baranoff Island was just sitting off Vancouver Island 50 million years ago. I published that in 1983. That's geology. Did you really? Yeah, and I republished it in 2003. It's called the, the Chugach, or the Baranoff Leech River hypothesis. You know, that again, it's a skinny thing, and there are the faults. That's the other thing. You know, people say, where's the Baja BC fault? Like Merle said, well, you know, that's 80 million years ago and a lot of things happened to faults. This is post 50. And then the Yakutat, this little terrain up there that everybody agrees is slamming into the Gulf of Alaska, the armpit of Alaska, and it had to travel um, maybe from right offshore here that has a piece of Siletsia in it, this crescent basalt. Um, so there are other, um, there are other geologically based um, um, hypotheses for, for transport. And um, I don't know, I think maybe, maybe the community's more interested in low angle normal faults. That's my current research. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I haven't abandoned Baja BC by any means, but I, I'm not doing, I'm not, doing any more field work that, that is relevant to it. Um, there's a group, um, it's Ken Ridgway and his students, um, Jeff Tropp and others who are working in central Alaska, kind of south of Denali. Okay. And they, they um, have studied the rock units and, and um, uh, the Denali Fault goes through there and this is the northern edge of Rangelia and there might be more work to try to zircon work. I don't know about paleomag. As Merle said, paleomag, we've, we've plucked all the low-hanging fruit, you know, like the pears on my little pear tree there. So um, I think in, in Alaska, maybe that part of Alaska, um, what I would like to, to do is, like I've said, I think that that the rock units in the San Juan Islands and the North Cascades, um, they're different ages and they've been juxtaposed along contractional faults, mm -hmm. um, came from the south. But, but I, don't, I don't know where, you know, the problem is they might have all been clipped off and, yeah. and carried up here. So yeah. um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what, what are, where are other places that we could, um, I think we, I think we need to better characterize the potential sources of these detrital zircons. And, and I might make one comment that, um, you know, we're, if, if um, we want to derive them from Idaho 80 million years ago, that's 80 million years ago. And 
were they were the source rocks actually exposed 80 million years ago? Mm. Um, in fact, we have Alison Duval and Basil. Um, there's a group with their students who are who are looking at the formation of the middle fork of the Salmon River, and this nice thing happens to be right there. And they've collected a lot of samples for thermal chronology to find out what the burial and exhumation history of this area is. So I think some interesting data are going to come out there about the possibility that that this thing was exposed. And then let's go to Southern California, the desert. Um, what did it look like 80 million years ago? You know, was there, were there, was there a source for these two particular peaks of Precambrian zircons 80 million years ago? I mean, today, this is 2020, and it's very difficult, very difficult to reconstruct what something was like in most cases 80 million years ago unless you're in Kansas you know right. I mean then you know you know you're a lot's gone on out here so better characterization of the potential sources of these zircons I think so that's a look ahead to the next decade possibly more zircon work better refinement better techniques uh, any other I mean it's impossible to brainstorm approaches that don't exist yet but any other glimmers of hope to push this ahead? Or do we need another Daryl paper, another like crucial test paper, like like a, another kind of, it's 50 years, let's let's regroup and where are we now? Well, I, I think I think what we chatted about earlier that um, that um, Basil Tikoff and Paul uh, Umhofer and I, um, we, it, it might be just a refreshment, uh, refreshing people about the idea of oblique motions in the Cordillera for 100 million years to the present time. And if you can say, wait a minute, uh, Basil calls it a new paradigm. And if, wait a minute, if you can say, yeah, that's, so what is, what is, what is oblique um, movement, um, what does that entail? Rotations, you know, and translations, strike, slip, faults. And if you can accept that as the, the, um, I won't say dominant paradigm, but a but a very productive view. Then I think um, you, you won't have to write another paper like this. Then I, it might bring more people into the into the uh, out of the minority. <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a tough thing. Oh, this has just been great. I want to make sure to plug your book, and then anything else you want to add is great, Daryl. If if, if Daryl's name sounds familiar to you and you can't quite figure out why, here's why. Daryl and one of his former students, Marley Miller, have put together a beautiful second edition of Roadside Geology of Washington. It's got this cover, so if you've got a yellow cover, that's the first edition. That's not these guys. And Marley also did the, uh, a second edition of the geology, Roadside Geology of Oregon. Uh, hey, I didn't see a whole lot of Baja BC in this book. Is oh, there's, a, li there's a little bit. I think there's a little bit. I say... Um, there's a controversy. I think it was in the part, the, the uh, part on, um, uh, I wrote the introductory parts mm -hmm. to the provinces like the Coast Mountains yes. and, and for the North Cascades and San Juan Islands. I think, I think it's in there, but not, not um, I was careful about that. I'm not gonna proselytize about, you know, Baja BC, but, but I did say there's a controversy. Well, that's what I'm curious about. It feels like people that have heard of it are hungry to learn more. 
and I guess it was your choice to, I don't know if conservative is the right word, but you're like, let's just look at the rocks, let's just, here's the mile marker, such and such, on Route 20, Yeah, I know, it's pretty. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, reading the comments um, after Merle's interview, people put in, I was really gratified how, how much they enjoyed not only him, but he's great, a great person to talk about this, but also the whole idea and and like you you picked picked up on it and got excited at the at the um, maybe I'm misreading the community. Maybe I there so. maybe there. <laughs> I no, don't I know. don't think so. This is one of the first 1997 issues that had color in American Journal of Science. You know, there it is. Um, and uh, well, I don't know if this if you have the um, yeah. So so one of the things. Um, well, I guess what I was really proud of was uh, was hypothesis A, you know, which is basically um, it, what it looked like 90, year, 90 million years ago is what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. And then B, um, which is just moving things back totally according to the paleomagnetic data. But there are the two, you know, you've got, there's Baja BC, there's California, and you gotta slide this thing past until it gets up, up to the north. So um, those were fun to make those. And then we also had stuff in here about, about oh yeah, this, um, the, um, so well done. the geology you know, of the Pacific Northwest. There's the Fraser River Strait Creek Fault and Coast Mountains and, and Vancouver Island, but also the introductory parts are a review of, of our geology here. And That's I right. think, I think um, that was a chance to kind of do a little synopsis and, and get it into a paper, hoping that people would um, read it and recognize some interesting, mm -hmm. interesting differences here. Well, I got you here then. So yeah. what are the four, um, you mentioned a couple of them casually, but maybe back to the abstract or something. If you've oh, got the, the, four, yeah. the four, you kind of had your like, yeah. okay, troops, okay. Here's, here's what needs to happen. <laughs> the provenance of detritus in mid-Cretaceous strata and the Metau and Tyotin basin. Mm -hmm. So Metau, Tyotin is the northern, the, the Canadian extension of the, of the Metau basin, which has a beautiful section of, um, lower Jurassic up into mid-Cretaceous stratified rocks. There have been paleomagnetic studies there, but they couldn't pass mm -hmm. the fold test, I think. So we don't, we don't include those in our... Um, so you want to look... Um, the detritus means detrital zircons. Yeah. You know, you want to know if, if, if they came from the Okanagan batholith to the east, or as I think we proposed um, the peninsular ranges. They would have been sitting off Mexico right. and come from the peninsular ranges. So still mixed results depending on who you talk to. Well, actually, um, Kathy Surplus has done, um, people, uh, including Kathy, have done detrital zircon studies. And she would make the case for the Okanagan batholith. But, but I've looked at, I think you can also derive them from plutonic rocks in the south. I've never published that. But again, it's um, look a little bit more broadly. Yes, um, right. And then um, here we go, late pre-late Campanian strata in the Nanaimo group. Okay, that's being that's being worked on a lot with the Calgary group and 
and um, early on by, as I said, Brian and Peter Mustard. Mm -hmm. Offset geological features in Baja, British Columbia, matching counterparts in southwestern California and northwestern Mexico. So can you find, if you look at, um, you know, rocks up here like the Shuxon or, uh, you know, can you find the, the parent where these orphans were derived, the parent down there, make a match, you've got two points, you know, you pinned it. These are like um, um, pinpoints or something. Um, we haven't done that yet. Haven't? No. I, because the problem is that, that um, they might have all been clipped off and, and they're now up here. See what I mean? It's kind of a, um, let's say that all these units in the San Juan Islands and the North Cascades um, did come from northern Mexico, northwestern Mexico, um, and nothing's left. I mean, they've all, they were accreted and they were added down there, and then they were carried up along in this oblique margin up to kind of a resting place here. Well, what's this business about the Swakane Nice near Wenatchee and then the P.O.R. Schist down in Southern Cal? Is um, that matching bedrock or is that more of a zircon? Well, it, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. I, um, I, I looked at the, I've, I've looked at the Swakane a little bit and, I, and I've also looked at the Polona or a copious schist. I grew up there. It's in the San Gabriel Mountains. And, and when I first heard that the Swakan might be Polona or Copia. I, I thought, wait a minute, they're, the rock types are kind of different. You know, the Polona or Copia has chert, has ultramafic bodies, and they're very, very rare in the Swakan. But you know, I mean, these units could change along strike and everything. So, so I think it's um, the zircon data are are pretty, pretty compelling. And no one would argue, I think, that Polona Randoracopia was not deposited right where it was, subducted very quickly, and then exhumed right there in Los Angeles. So um, this is the paper by Kirsten Sauer and others that said, you know, this is pretty, um, pretty, I learned a lot when I read that. I thought, or I, I got a preprint, I thought, oh, that's pretty darn neat. Um, so, um, yeah, I think um, that's, that's a good, that's basically a geological match. You're not going to get paleomagnetic data out of right. any of those things. But, um, so that paper, I don't know if it's had much of an effect. I mean, we read it, you know, I oh, read it, and page. Paul Umhofer reads it, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, and there, then. There could be more of that. There could be more of that matching of rock units. There, that's, that's right, yeah. Um, in fact, um, John Garver, he and Cam Davidson have a paper um, they're working on about the Yakutat group. And they found some very interesting um, comparisons of what's in the Yakutat group, with, which is what's over here in the Cascades called the Western and Eastern Melange Belts. I don't know, they're mysterious units that nobody talks much about. but. But um, John, um, John's very good about, about um, again, that's matching up rock unit yes. up in Alaska with something that's right here. Give us um, a location here that would work for that eastern or western. Um, yeah, I'll tell you. I was Mount just Sai up there. I, yes, I was just up there twice. Mount Sai, um, the um, Sultan Basin, 
um, the South Fork of the Stillaguamish River, um, all the way um, up to uh, basically what, what I think Roland Tabor called the Darrington Devil's Mountain Fault Zone. You know, so it's this, um, yeah, Mount Si, Stillaguamish River, um, west of the Straight Creek Fault, yes. west of the Straight Creek yeah. Fault. It's very poorly exposed. I mean, I, I went up and um, actually, um, there's been some detrital zircon work there. It's a mixture. It really is a mixture of all kinds of stuff in there. And I went up and collected a sample that hadn't been studied um, for detrital zircon sandstone. And I asked Stacia, and I'll send it to her. And she said, well, we'll just crush it up and see if there's any in there. And then if there are, you can go back and collect some more. But <laughs> But um, again, that's a match. That's like my matching of southern tip of Baranoff Island with the Leech River schist. That's the unit in southern Vancouver Island. That's geology. I mean, that's the most satisfying from a teaching point of view, that, and maybe for the skeptics as well. If you can blindfold you know, that, somebody and take them to Mount Si and Chugash and say, "Show that, me the difference." That's a good. That's a good point. I think if you um, um, if I think the, the Leech River Baranoff hypothesis has gotten a little more traction because it's basically two rock units that have had such a similar history as young as 50 million years ago that it'd be, I mean, it could be a, a wonderful coincidence, but I think, and given the, the presence of major strike slip faults in Alaska um, and um, some paleomagnetic data. There are a couple of paleomagnetic sites in the Chugach Prince William terrain that date from the 80s, early 80s, wow. that show, and Bernie Hausen and, and uh, I think Sarah Rusky have a couple of unpublished dates. So um, I, I still think that's a great idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Baranoff Leech River. Yeah. Well, oh, there. number four. Let's see. And. Late Cretaceous or older features limiting offset across the transcurrent Baja BC fault to less than a thousand kilometers. So we hypothesize there has to be a big fault, like the um, Pasayten fault, and um, or the Coast Shear Zone in Alaska. And if you could find something that this is what Jim Monger would argue, we can do that. We've got these conglomerates in the Cretaceous that that are present on both sides of the fault, and that's a pinning point that would limit to the, d the displacement to much less than, than 1,000 kilometers. I also should mention that um, Paul Umhofer, early on in the late 80s, um, and others, I think it was Sandra Wild, um, added up all the slip along all the faults from the Tintina Trench all across British Columbia, and they can come up um, just with what we know about the faults with 1,600 kilometers of, of slip like that. So there again, that's geology. I mean, you're not going to say those faults don't exist, and we've got numbers. So um, when you do a purely, and Paul will still stand by that, when you do a purely geological reconstruction, um, 1,600 kilometers puts it pretty far south, off California, basically, not as far as 3,000 kilometers. So. Well, has, that has to be the minimum offset for any discussion. That, exactly, exactly. And people still insist? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have to, I would ask Paul. I'd say, well, all right, you, I'm going to ask you what Nick asked me. Yeah. 
what's the reception? What's the reaction? Right. You know, what do you what do you hear from people? And I kind of think he would say, well, I don't know. I don't. I think it should have more, <laughs> more, you know, get more traction. But I don't know. I don't. I want to put it, words in his mouth. Well, yeah. It, well, that's probably enough for today. Thanks to Daryl for his time. Thanks to you for your time. Hope you're continuing to have interest in this Baja BC concept and we'll continue to build on what we can learn together. I love you. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>